This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This is the Project Up Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we're talking western bird hunting with brandon moss of voight harness thanks for tuning in to episode number 146 podcast is presented by onyx hunt yukonuba sporting dog cz usa garmin sage and breaker and dakota 283 all right everybody we're back august is halfway over and this is my first episode of the month don't worry we're getting back on track here we got more on the way and we are that much closer to september everybody hope you are getting as excited as i am we're going to jump into the interview in just a minute, but I got a couple of quick things to run by you. This is something I forgot to do on the last episode. A few weeks ago now, I did a little poll on my Instagram account asking folks to recommend their favorite bird hunting pants. And I was looking for something specifically, which was kind of an everyday, all season pant, nothing crazy heavy duty or totally waterproof or anything like that. So that biased the selections a little bit. But all that said, I ended up getting over 100 responses and I wanted to share with the listeners here on the podcast, in case you missed it, don't follow me on Instagram, some of the top recommendations that I found through that poll. 
So the runaway winner of said poll by a long shot was, without a doubt, the first light sawbuck brush pant. That specific pant had more than double the recommendations of the nearest competitor or other option, if you will. So that was by far the most recommended pant. A ton of people wore them last year and expressed their positive experiences with them. Moving on from there, Pike Gear came in at number two, and that was more of a collection of the Kiowa Tongas. They've got different options, but the Pike Gear offerings were definitely number two, followed by Duluth Trading Company. This is one that I'm familiar with because we've got a store here and I've worn some of their gear. They have made brush pants in the past. They don't currently offer one, but they do have just their fire hose canvas pants, which a lot of people like. I've worn them. They're very comfortable pants. I would consider wearing them in the grouse woods around here. However, somebody did make note of the fact that for, unfortunately for the guys only, no ladies on this one, hopefully Duluth Trading changes that, but guys can go on DuluthTrading.com and you can build a custom pair of fire hose pants. One of the options you have is to add an additional chap layer of nylon on the front, effectively creating your own Duluth Trading brush pants. I went on there and I built it and designed it. I haven't pulled the trigger on ordering it yet, although I'm very tempted to because I do love their pants. They've got anything with Duluth Flex stretches and would be a really good option. After the Duluth Trading, there were some recommendations for the Carhartt pants that are now discontinued. I'm pretty sure Carhartt Upland pants and kind of rounding out the top five would be, there was a tie between a number of different brands, but Orvis being one, Kuyu being another, Patagonia being a third. Of course, Orvis definitely has specific brush pant options. With Kuyu and Patagonia, it's a little bit more diluted. People were recommending different models that suited their needs. But that's just a little bit of insight into a poll that I did as I was interested in getting some new pants for up and hunting this year. Kind of always on the search like a lot of us for that next great pair of pants, the ones I've been wearing for the last couple years. I think I'm going to patch them up. They've probably got a maybe one more usable season in them and i have liked them they're 511 tactical stone cutters which i believe are discontinued now kind of a common theme here but those have worked out well for me they're not perfect but they're lightweight breathable they kind of have a little brush pant facing on the front of them but i've got a hole ripped in the side of them and got to get that patched up to continue using them so i think i'll do that but i might be pulling the trigger on something from the top of this list thanks to all those following me on instagram i think i'm going to do some more of these little polls question and answer things and share them with the people on the podcast so if you like it let me know oh and i do have to mention here there was an honorable mention which is the wrangler flex waste outdoor cargo pant these things are like 25 bucks you can get them for as low as like 21 or 22 bucks from walmart i think there's a little bit of an inventory issue i wasn't able to get a pair of the tan ones but i got a pair of these earth green wrangler flex waste outdoor cargo pants they're super lightweight they are not protective as far as a brush pant goes but for like a prairie pant or a western hunting pant for a cheap option dog training whatever I got a pair and I love them. They are, for the price you pay, they are a nice pant to wear for hot, dry days. They dry out really fast. They're super light, super breathable. Just another option for folks if you're looking to add something to the closet. I wanted to mention that I have had my eyes on the Upland Institute. 
some dog training videos. If you are a podcast listener, you probably heard about this at this point. This is a collaboration between Justin McGrail, dog trainer, and Ron Bame of the Honey Dog Podcast. They have put together a video training series, Upland Institute. I got to take a look at it. I'm working on some things with my one-year-old setter pup right now, trying to get just enough of a handle on her before we enter our second hunting season, which I'm really excited about doing some wool work, some steadiness training, and ultimately getting a break that I can put on rows in specific situations that I'm interested in. And all that to say, there have been some videos within the Upland Institute that have been very helpful. I I think I've read a lot of dog training books, and I know a lot of the people listening probably have. You've listened to lots of dog training podcasts. Something about hearing a guy like Justin McGrail explain and describe things and then seeing him with his hands on a collar and a dog in the field really helped to connect a few dots for me. So if you've ever listened to the podcast episodes with Justin McGrail over on the Honey Dog Podcast, you will know the kind of quality and explanation and practicality that you're going to get from Justin McGrail. And it's definitely carries through into this video series. So if you're in the market for something like that, you're looking to learn more about dog training and try to see some processes and techniques specifically from Justin McGrail, definitely check it out, uplandinstitute.com. A couple more things for you. This next one is kind of a big deal. If you recall from a couple of months ago, we did the Garmin Zero S1 giveaway. We gave away a Pike Gear vest and a Garmin Zero S1 when we had Brent Pike on the show, the Garmin Zero S1 Trap Shooting Trainer. It went to a listener of the show, Gary. He's actually local or nearby here where I live. And I talked to him about it. He went out to try the Garmin Zero S1 tool at the Sporting Clays range that we have around here. And ultimately, after fiddling with it a little bit, he realized that it's really ideally set up for to be a trap shooting trainer. It's it's not something you can just tote around the Sporting Clays range as far as he can tell and really get it calibrated and set up. It just it's not practical in that application. So we talked about it and what we decided to do was he wants to offer to donate this Garmin Zero S1 back. It's been used one time. It's he's already got it back in the box. It's boxed up ready to go like new. We want to donate it to a trap shooting team. High school, collegiate, some kind of a trap shooting team. We don't really want to make a big deal about it or get too specific. But what we ask is that if folks are listening, if you know of a high school trap shooting team or some other kind of a youth group association that could find value in using one of these Garmin Zero S1 trap shooting trainers for your team, get in touch with me and give us a little brief explanation of who it's for, how it will be used, and how you think it will benefit the team. Not to go crazy with it, but just give us a little information on how you think this could benefit a specific group of youth shooters. Gary is pretty excited about it. He wants it to go to somebody, again, that will use it and get value out of it. And I told him I would happily facilitate that on the podcast. So email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com with that brief explanation. And in a couple of weeks to a month, we will take all those entries, we'll either select one or we'll just put everybody that sends us something in. We'll just put everybody in a hat, draw a name, and we'll deliver that. And I'll announce that here on the podcast. All right, last thing here before we get into the episode. On today's show, I am interviewing Brandon Moss of Boyd Harness, 
which which is a company that also owns Mud River Dog Products and Goki Boots. And on that note, I've got a little code here for listeners. I got a pair of the Goki Boit Boots. I've been breaking them in this summer and looking forward to wearing them out on the prairie this fall. That said, anybody listening, if you are interested in a pair of Goki Boots, I've got a code here for you to use. Upland 21. Upland 21. That's Upland 2-1. Save you 75 bucks on a pair of Goki boots. So if you're interested, check them out. Goki boots, Goki USA. They've got a bunch of different options and use code Upland 2-1. Go get them. All right, let's get into it. Today we have Brandon Moss, as I said, from Boyd Harness, Mud River Goki. He's a Montana Upland bird hunter. I interviewed him a couple of years ago after I got a chance to go out and hunt with him. We reflect back a little bit on some of that trip and some of the things Brandon has been up to and going through more on that in today's show, but Brandon's doing well. We look ahead at the upland bird season, and more importantly, we talk about some of the drought conditions and a lot of the different factors affecting the upland bird hunting conversation as it relates to some of the western states this year. Brandon's been hunting out there for 30 years. He's got a lot of knowledge, and I think he had some really, really important insights to share as far as what to be thinking about this season, what to be mindful of, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So with all that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the podcast from Boyd Harness, Brandon Moss. We are recording. Brandon Moss, welcome back to the show, buddy. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. It is August. We're getting closer and closer to the time of year that we all love, and we're going to talk about that quite a bit. And you are out in Montana, so of special interest to a lot of listeners and kind of a topic of conversation, you know, not in a good way in in many ways with drought stuff. So we're going to do our best to hit some of those high notes today. But first, I just want to catch up and see how things are going. What have you been up to lately, man? Man, I've been up to a lot. I'm... uh I'm doing some work for uh, a contract with um, Boyd and Boyd owns Mud River and Goki Boots. And so I've been doing some work for them and we're basically um, reigniting the upland line and uh, doing some good stuff there that we're super excited about and hopefully coming out with soon. And uh, I'm going to be able to show it um, hopefully at SHOT Show and get everything together by then. But we've been doing a lot there. I've been, uh, had kind of a bump in the road this spring. I had a surgery that went real bad. I was, uh, in the hospital for about a month and it's taken me a long time to get out and start getting back and starting to get back in the swing of things. So I'm trying to get that going as well. Yeah. It's been a busy, big year for you. Again, not in, not in a good way every way, but, uh, obviously we're here talking, so that's good, right? It is good. Yep. Well, we had you on in 2018. We were just looking it up. October 2nd, 2018 is when I released episode number 43 of the podcast. And that was coming off the just the tail end of me heading out to Montana to hunt for my first time and got to spend a couple of days walking the sage flats with you and shot my first and only sage grouse and some sharp tails and overall had a dang good time with you and some of the folks at onyx hunt that was a good hunt it was it was a memorable one i still still look back on that video and it's still fun it's still touching it's it was a great video the getting to meet everyone and have uh have a good time out in our our cabin we stayed at it was just a good good hunt good times and 
you know, we, we saw birds, we got birds, and like you said, you got your first and only sage grouse, so obviously we didn't get a ton of birds, but it was just a good fun hunt. Yeah, well, part of it being the only sage grouse is that there was some missing involved, too. Yeah, <laughs> always. <laughs> yeah, that happens. I, I actually was, I was telling the story of shooting at the first sage grouse while I was at Pine Ridge a couple of days ago because make a long story short here on the podcast a friend of mine from minnesota he had he had given myself and my buddy garrett who you know some insight on where to go find sage grouse and he basically put us right on the spot and i remember that first the first time i shot at a sage grouse garrett's dog went on point and the wind was at our backs and the dog goes on point facing straight at us so we know we've got birds pin we have a pretty good idea there's birds pinned in between us you know the ideal setup really for a pointy dog and a couple of gunners and we take a few steps in we close the gap and sure enough this big flock of sage grouse gets up right in front of us and they were right into the wind it was a pretty stiff evening breeze and i i remember swinging on a bird that i mean shoot it was right on top of me brandon and i took two shots and i swear i don't think that bird was hardly moving in the wind as it was getting up and i think i just sailed two shots right in front of his nose and never never dust you know even knocked a feather that's quite common actually people want to get out there too far in front of them they don't realize what they're like so they're you know they're a big giant bird and you think oh how could you miss that but they are there's a lot of misses that come with sage grouse yeah i believe it and, and you know hindsight being 2020 i was shooting a an old Fox Sterling worth that I now know that I really did not shoot that gun very well for a number of reasons with the way it fit me and the way it was set up. But I also, uh, you know, my wing shooting has improved a bunch and that was, uh, that was kind of the norm back then anyways. <laughs> yeah, no. And I had my fair share of misses on that trip too. I was, I look back on it as well. And I, uh, I've had the same vest that I've had, um, growing up the, an old Filson vest. And that, that year I switched vests to a, yeah. to a bigger one and I never went out and practiced with it and so when I got out there it was a whole different vest whole different setup and I just could not get used to it couldn't figure out why I was missing so much and I got realizing that I had uh I hadn't shot with my vest on and and everything I wasn't used to it and I I had my Garmin collar up there I wasn't used to that being up there on my my sternum strap and everything so I ended up going to the range the next summer and doing quite a bit of shooting with that vest on and it improved it a lot yeah, that'll help. I, I know that, you know, that trip, really, the, the bagging of birds was not the, that was not really the takeaway for anybody. You know, we got into some birds and, and we put a few in the bag, but for me, it was much more, that was my first time hunting Montana and taking in the sights and the scenery and walking the sage flats. And I mean, the Matt Seidel from Onyx took us to some really cool places. I mean, just seeing the country is what I remember most about that trip. Yeah. You just weren't in this. You, when you went with Matt, you guys just weren't in the sage. You guys went to some different country, didn't you? Yeah. We got into some more short grass, prairie rolling terrain. It's really unique stuff. I haven't, I haven't hunted anything like that since. And, uh, I, st I can still pretty vividly recall, uh, one day in particular that we had, had some really good sharp tail hunting that day. Yeah. There was some good, I think where you guys went, we went, I went with them there at another time and there was some good sharp tail hunting in that country as well. We got, uh, you know, by the end of the trip, we kind of had the sage grouse dialed in where it was, but where they were. And, um, we, I don't think, I don't think we took a whole bunch of them still, but we were still seeing quite a few a day. And it was just, it was good to, I think good to see that, you know, for me, like you coming out there seeing it, it was for you coming and seeing a whole new place and everything yeah. for me, I enjoy watching people who have that experience something that i've used to i've been around 
gosh, I think I've been hunting birds 30, 31 years in Montana now. And so I'm used to it and see that. And so seeing somebody come out there and experience for the first time is a joy for me. Yeah. And I, it would probably be a serious omission on my part if I didn't bring up, I have a feeling I, I probably talked about this on episode 43 when we went there, but let's not forget that it was 150 yards from the truck on the first day when I'm pretty sure it was tough. Do you recall that? Tough. Yep. I still got him. He's four, I was running him today. He's 14 years old. So I still got him. Holy man. So he was 11 at the time. Yeah. I mean, roughly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was 11 years old and we are, again, we're a hundred yards out and tough's on point. My dog was Hartley was running around his, his first time running that country. And the, the, the funny part about that is basically the way that everybody was set up in position, I was sort of right on top of tough. And so I just kind of looked back and my buddy Garrett basically called in Hartley and just kind of woed him up. And then we got into this, I think you were there and I know Matt was there and we got into this dance where, you know, there was a nice breeze. And what ultimately happened is there was a bunch of running sharp tails and I still to this day don't know how they were running through that grass without seeing them but tough was pointing and relocating and pointing and relocating and I was walking I was like side by side neck and neck with tough until finally those birds started getting up and then there was a pile of them there was yeah no it was a fun like what was good for me is like you know I we none of us have been in that country before we all went up there and I kind of drove some of those roads and uh and so I, I checked that area out and I was like, you know, this is a good area. And we, like you, I think someone said, you know, there better be birds as far as we had to drive here. And like, <laughs> yeah. you could have, like something Garrett might say, yeah, no, I think it was Garrett that said that. And, <laughs> and you couldn't ask for anything better to get birds that quick out of the truck. It's like, right. it made me look like I really knew what I was doing, but there was a lot of luck that came with them to be right there, but it was a good time. Like the watching the dog work and everything. Yeah. you know it was it was good i think you and matt each got a bird out of that that yeah. jump yeah so yeah. and that's and where my missus was, came in yeah yeah and then i i do know there was there was a lot of walking a lot of birdless walking after that but hey that's that's bird hunting yep that's montana for you yeah exactly well that was uh that was a fun trip and, and that's kind of a, enough reflecting on that one but hopefully we'll get a chance to walk the uplands again together soon that would be that'd be a good time but man let's i I don't want to i definitely don't want to breeze over your physical recovery and you were in the hospital and again we don't need to we don't need to go too deep into it but just briefly tell us what happened and kind of get us up to speed on your road to recovery and getting back out there this fall okay yeah so uh long long story short and you know and going back to that film we talked about a little bit back in I can't remember what it was, 2008, I got a real bad back injury, and it kind of uh, yeah. kind of really has been my my anchor as far as, like, you know, wanting to fulfill my dreams and hunting goes. I, don't let it, I didn't let it stop me, but it definitely slowed me down. I'd still go hunting, I'd still do the things, but I never got to do, like, exactly what I wanted to. But with, uh, with the back pain came not being able to do a lot of physical stuff, it came... And I've always been a big guy, a lot of weight gain and stuff like that. So I had the, I, I gained quite a bit of weight. I wasn't able to physically get it off. Uh, and so I ended up having, um, a gastric bypass and come home and I tell my wife, I'm like, something's wrong. Something, you know, the doctors tell me I'm okay. Um, something's not right. So we go to the hospital. This is two days later. They tell me, yeah, there's a blockage. 
so then I went septic and I had kidney problems and I had heart problems and I had infection problems and I had all kinds of problems. And that's why I was in the hospital so long and it really set me back. But um got out of the hospital. I I was wasn't sure what I was gonna be doing or how I was gonna be doing anything or stuff like that. Slowly day by day I just kept pushing myself and kept pushing myself and I've gotten to the point where I've been able to go on some hikes. I've been able to, you know, for going to the mountains and I've started working my dogs again. I've really had to push my, my family's really been there behind me. My daughters and my wife, especially my, my wife's been more than a rock of this whole thing. And, uh, she's always been there for me, but, um, she, so I've just had to keep pushing myself. And, you know, today I was out there, I got up, you know, about little before four took off a couple hours from Billings and it was working dogs. And so it's a blessing. And, you know, with the surgeries come quite a bit of weight loss. I think I'm right around a hundred pounds right now since March. So that's been the, the big focus of my life the last little bit. And the, it's, I've really had to push myself to, to recover at the pace I need to, but also mentally just keep pushing myself and do the things that I love. And so I'm looking forward to, you know, gosh, you know, getting out there opening day, but like August is so much more, so much for me to be out there working dogs at this. It was, I was focused the whole time on August to be able to get dogs out there when the birds were mature and work them and stuff like that, that it's fine. August is finally here and I'm working dogs and I'm just couldn't ask for more. Yeah. That's awesome, man. I, I mean, I know you t- you told me most of that when we talked a couple of weeks ago, but gosh, it it doesn't sound like it was any easier this time around, too, man. That's that's just brutal. No, it was definitely a hard thing. Um, a lot of the, uh, I guess you know the doctors and stuff said that you you know there's don't know how how I'm alive, but somehow I am, and I guess, jeez, I guess there's a good reason why I am. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, I I also I've, I've never had the pleasure of meeting your wife, but I I recall in the film that Project Upland did with you back in eighteen. I mean, you talked about how critical she was there. I mean, man, you uh you got pretty lucky with her. I'm very lucky. I got a very <laughs> very special lady in my life, and so she's she's been good. And if it wasn't for her, there's you know I probably would have made it through this. I wouldn't be where I am. I. And, uh, she's just really, uh, everyone says, you know, I say she's the rock, but more, she's more the, the diamonds that cut the rock. She's, she's been very, very supportive and very much there. And it's been hard on her as well, but she's just always been there for me. I do recall also when you were recovering, you know, she was, she stepped up in a big way and she was running your dogs and taking care of them. I'm guessing she was doing a lot of that this time too. Yep. Mm-hmm. She, she's been her and, uh, my daughter's uh, helped out. My youngest one's really into the. She's got her own bird dog and uh, and everything. So she did a lot, but my wife's just she's been uh, taking care of things with that as well, which is a blessing because I anybody that has bird dogs know how important they are to them. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about your dogs, just because again, I, I you know I mentioned tough and he's he's still around. He's fourteen, but tell me about the dogs you have, what kind, and what do you have right now. So I'm still straight Britneys, and yep. uh, I always toy around with that idea of getting a pointer in there, and uh, but I just stick with the Britneys. I really like them. I've also toyed around with the idea of getting a, a retrieving dog because my Britneys aren't the greatest retrieving dogs. They'll do some. They're not the you know they're not the best. But I've always my motto's always been if you know the dog can run miles on end to find the birds, I can walk thirty feet and pick it up. 
And so I, I don't worry too much about that. But I got um I got tough. That's fourteen. And I had on that trip too was dusty, and uh, yep. I had that little female. And I I bred those two together. And um I think it was just ten weeks before that hunt that she had the pups. And so I got one pup out of that, and that's actually my youngest daughter's dog, uh, and she named him Gary. So uh, okay. I got him, and he's three years old, and then I got another a litter mate to him. It's technically my buddy's dog, but he spends a, he spends the summer and hunting season with me. I work in him and stuff like that, so works out great for me. And then uh, come the end of hunting season, my buddy takes him back at his house and stuff like that. And he's actually probably one of the probably the best dogs I've ever had come out of my kennel. And uh, his name's Finn. So I'm running four dogs, 14-year-old and the Dusty, uh, 14-year-old Tough, Dusty, and then their two sons, Gary and Finn. And I'll probably probably get uh, another female this fall, or excuse me, this spring. Okay. So earlier, something you caught my attention when you talked about, you know, you were just, you had your sights set on being able, being mobile and being able to get out there right now because it's, you know, you got to get your dogs in shape and get them conditioned and you know, for sure in that country, your season opens a little bit earlier than other places, September 1st. And we all know what conditions can be like out there. Or or if we don't, we can go into that a little bit. But, you know, heat can be a real issue. And this year in particular, super dry. There's not going to be probably water anywhere. We're going to, we're going to dive a lot deeper into that, but, um, how are you feeling? I mean, are you, are you, you're, you're getting out there enough to get the dogs in shape? Dogs doing well. Yeah, we'll get them in shape. We'll be there by the first of the year. And, you know, the good thing about this is, so they'll have a little over a month's worth of work, you know, getting in shape. But in Montana, typically those first couple weeks, you can't hunt all day anyways. Right. Um, you're, some days you're good till maybe 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and that's too hot for the dog. Some days you can go till noon. But rarely do you get it. And there's been years that you can do this, but rarely do you get a full day hunt out of that. So your dog's needs to be in shape that you can get, you know, a few hours out of them, you know, anywhere from two to four hours in the morning, but they don't have to be in the tip top shape by then. At that point, you can start hunting them in shape. Important thing for me, and I, f- I found this out a few years back, that is I used to uh, run my dogs during the off season just every other day. And, you know, I let them rest and stuff like that. But then come hunting season, they'd, I'd have them like, and I'd start hunting three or four days in a row Usually I'd get an injury right in that very first time I'd hunt multiple days in a row. So for me, what I do is I start off every other day. Sometimes I give them two days rest um, if I've had a real hard hunt or real hard work. And uh, then I start, then I go two days in a row, and then I give them a day or two off. And then I'll I'll work up. By season starts, they've ran three days in a row. And by running, it's not a half hour. These are I'm taking them out now. Like today's, today's run was probably... A little about two hours straight and so i have put all four dogs down i go for two hours and let them get a good amount of exercise and so if as the, by the time season comes around they're going to be running anywhere from two and a half hours to three and a half hours straight in one run so they get used to that long long period of time that they've been running because it is very important that they they get used to those longer longer runs i know a lot of guys will start say i do mine for a half hour and i work up to an hour and that's all i work my dog and i i I like that approach but it's not real feasible for me being here in montana because there's many times we're hunting leaving the truck and coming back five and a half six hours later so my dog's got to be 
be able to condition to to run that long. Yeah, uh, you read my mind. I was going to ask you a little bit about sort of the A, Bs, and Cs of what your approach is to getting the dogs conditioned. You brought up a lot of a lot of good points there. Do you are you tracking the dogs at all? On I know you run GPS collars. Are you like how many miles do they run in two hours? Because I know knowing your dogs, I mean they they run big. They're they're putting some miles on in two hours. Yeah, you know, here's my thing is I'm not smart enough to do a whole bunch of things at one time, so I always forget to push that button. <laughs> to, so, uh, you know, that button that uh, to tell me, you know, start start a new hunt on my garden. Yeah, yeah. So I always forget that. And so over the years, I've kind of just learned that. So I just more or less go to two hours, how long I've worked. And, yeah. today, you know, that's that's more how I judge it. And then a lot of times, you know, I let the dogs dictate how far we, how long we run. If uh, in the morning, if they, if they're running and they're getting really tired, it's not hot to me. I don't feel hot, but they're showing signs of being hot. After an hour and a half, we're heading back to the truck. We're stopping. You know, I maybe I can't feel something, but I let them dictate. If we've been running two and a half hours and they're still going strong, I keep going. You know, as long as they stay, you know, as long as they can tell that they're not overheating. And so. Going back to that, I don't know how many miles they run, but I just know that we put on a. I, I can go off my steps with my Garmin uh, Instinct, and then I can go how long we we run. And you know, some of these days during the season, we're doing over thirty thousand steps. And that's you, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know what the dogs are actually doing, but we're out there all day long. Yeah. Well, and and yeah, uh, that's. I was just curious if you track the miles, but you know, for you as the trainer, you know. Again, if you know what duration you're working with every day, like you understand relatively what the dogs are doing, and that, that's enough for you as the trainer. You just need to you need to know your dogs, and then really good point about always observing, watching, paying attention. You know, I think most people are pretty naturally good at this. You can tell if your dog is struggling, or but the key there is if you see your dog slowing down, really showing signs of of the heat getting to them. That's when you say all right, let's maybe not keep going further away from the truck. Let's turn and go back to the truck. We can always regroup and, and go again. Yep, yep. I had one dog growing uh, not growing up, but uh, if, quite a few years back. He was very susceptible of overheating, and he would not show signs of it. So that was the one dog I had to put a time limit on. Okay, I'm going to run you for an hour, an hour and a half, and then you're done. And he was the only dog that I really couldn't keep an eye and start really – um, seeing signs of it, he would just run, 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 and then all of a sudden, boom, he was done. Like, oh, so, like collapse, basically. He was just next to me. Just was at sometimes okay. he would start, you know, he'd come walk, he'd come walk next to me, and he'd be like uh, doing that heat stroke where they throw up a little bit and stuff like that. And then you start panicking and stuff like that. And it took two yeah. times of that for me to say, I'm done. You know, I'm putting a time limit on you, and this is what you get. So it's one of those things that you'll hear and read, and a lot of people say, and it sounds good when you say it you know, a dog will, dog will run until they're dead basically, right? Like their drive, their drive overrides their, their own self-preservation. And, and so we, we have to keep an eye on them, but really you do. I mean, that's, that's nothing could, nothing could be more true and you've got to keep an eye on your dogs. But I, I was going to ask you if, have you ever had a dog go down in the field? Have you ever had them hit that breaking point? Cause I've been fortunate. I haven't had that happen. I've seen my dogs get really hot and overworked, including yesterday. Um, little story I can share, but what have you seen? So I've I've never had that happen where they're just done uh, or where, they're, where it's like a, a danger to them. And um, what I have had is their pads go bad. 
And so oh, they'll yeah. they'll crack a pad or they'll cut their pads or something like that, and then I just throw them over my shoulders and and uh, carry them on out that way. But this this one particular dog, he'd just come walk next to me, and he'd be getting really sick and everything like that. And so, but he just never collapsed. But yeah. but like we were saying, I keep a pretty close eye on him. And I let the dogs, I read the dogs really well, and I let them dictate what's going on. Tough thing out there too is that if your dog Let's say your dog did get in a bad way. It's not like you can just go run and hide under a tree. You mm-hmm. know, like oh, over here, if things get hot, you can go sit under a shady tree and that can make a world of a difference. But I've I've seen that country out there and there might not be a tree in sight. No, I don't think I came by any shade today at all. Yeah. Oh. So that's where, again, if you're a couple miles from the truck and a dog gets in trouble, I mean, that's cannot be understated how how critical that could be especially folks are going to be out there early season i did think that was an interesting perspective not that you could just bank on it but the early season is sort of conducive to getting up early getting the dogs run and just understanding that the day is probably going to be cut short if the weather is typical you know i think i've maybe had one maybe two days when in my three years of going out west and generally hunting the prairie where like it was a cloudy day and we could hunt all day and the dogs were fine but for the most part you're taking a break in there somewhere yeah i there rarely do you do you get a whole day so i think there's there's one year i talked to some guys uh that were coming up i said don't come the first two weeks they're they're horrible come the last two weeks of september uh they want to hunt stage grouse he said that's the best times the sure. first two weeks uh it was it was like 60 for a high it was overcast it was just beautiful the second two weeks it was getting in the 90s and everything just backwards what it's supposed to be but that was the that wasn't the norm most most of the time you're finding out that you get a you get a quarter day to a half day of hunting and then you're done with the dogs yeah let's talk i want to talk sage grouse and snakes i got a lot of ideas popping in my i'm glad i got you on the, on the line today brandon let's talk sage grouse just generally speaking what's going on with sage grouse at your perspective as a bird hunter, what is the season? Is the season pretty short, couple of weeks now, or is it still the month of September? So it's the whole month of September, and your limits okay. to a day. And I think, in my opinion, that's pretty that's pretty accurate of what it should be. Okay. Most people aren't coming out here, so you, if you you do the math, you get you know roughly what, thirty days times two birds, sixty birds. Most people aren't shooting sixty birds. There's, I don't think anybody ever will do that. So, so being able to come out for the whole month of September and shoot two a day, you're probably getting, some people are lucky if they get one bird the whole trip. Some people are, uh, will shoot a limit a day or, you know, shoot three or four over the whole trip. So I think the seasons, being able to shoot two a day is a good number. And I think the season is a good length right now. It's just the month of September. Do you think the bird are the birds? What is the underlying? And I'm just this is from a totally, for the most part, checked out perspective. I haven't, I'm not paying attention to Montana sage grouse a whole lot, other than things I just kind of see in passing. But are birds stable at the moment? Are are they are they fluctuating a lot? What's going on? So what you'll hear is that the birds are declining and everything else, and it's overall it's true. The birds have declined. So when I, like I said, I've been hunting birds in Montana for 30, I think it's 31 years now. So when I first started hunting, your season went from September 1st to December 15th, and your limit was four a day for sage grouse. And um, and so it, 
during those times, there was obviously a lot more birds. Then the season got sh- shorter to uh, September 1st to it was September and October that it was it was good for, and then your limit was two a day, and now it's it's down to the month of September two a day. So yes, the birds are getting less than what they were 31 years ago, from what I've seen. You're getting reports that you know we should we should probably shut these off, no hunting them and stuff like that. We're not at that point. There's birds to be. We're at a huntable level. I think their habits have changed. I think the what you the way you see them is a whole whole different story. It used to be able to they I think they're my thoughts is they've moved away from roads a lot more. I used to see them when you're driving up and down the roads lots and people would say that and say, Oh, I haven't seen one for a long time, I haven't seen one for a long time. I get anywhere from a quarter mile to half mile away and that's when I start seeing the birds from the roads. And I don't think they know where the roads are. I think they just are starting to adapt to the less they don't like to be around a lot of noise and a lot of commotion so they move away from that their populations have shrunk so they can actually do that so when you hear that there i I haven't seen any well it's you know there's a lot of times it's because you didn't didn't walk far enough away from the roads or get get you know driving down the roads you don't see them anymore occasionally you do so so yes the bird i feel the birds are very stable i feel there's a very huntable population i think in many states, I think Wyoming probably has the most huntable population, and Montana has a, a decent one as well. It's just from what I've seen growing up, you're going to have to work a little bit harder. Yeah, and I think that's pretty common, really. You know, some, sometimes it's hard to decipher the anecdotal things that get reported and things you hear, and hunter effort is always the X, fa- X factor. You know, you could read something or hear something that somebody says and you have no idea if that person, unless they say, unless that person may have hunted two days or they, or they may have hunted all 30 days in September. You're going to put a little, lot more value on the report from the person that hunted all 30 days in September. Right. But we don't always, we don't always get that context, but that that's what I wanted to know from you. Just kind of what is sort of the conversation and, and anecdotally what people are saying. But unfortunately, it's all too common that we're talking game birds. It is, we hear a lot of bag limits going down, seasons going down. And I understand why you would grab onto that and think, you know, this is going one way. Bird numbers are going down and the season dates and the bag limits are following and when and where does it turn around? And that's, you know, we've talked about a lot of conservation and habitat issues on this podcast and we're not going to break them all down. Today we'll talk about them again, but it's it's just kind of part of the conversation a lot when it comes to upland game birds, and I know none of us like that. No, we don't. But you know, it's bird numbers are going. You know, I think they're. I don't know if they're going down as so much as they're fluctuating because there's been a lot of years they've got. Like I said, they have gone down overall, but you're getting there. When you think about the bird numbers are going down, you just think of a downhill slope and it's just doesn't, you know, it doesn't change at all. You just got to realize that these birds will go down then they'll come back up and go down and come back up. Will we ever see them where they were 30, 40, 50 years ago? Probably not. Um, they've had habitat loss that's not going to be uh, coming back. So part yeah, of their home is gone forever. Yes. Yep. So, exactly. but yeah. But let us not forget, as you're alluding to there, you know, these are a lot of times we're talking native game birds and whether they're native or not, we're talking hardy birds that are, you know, generally able to adapt to a lot of conditions. I mean, 
the fact that any of the birds that we hunt are surviving and thriving on la- this landscape is probably a testament to their fortitude already. And, uh, you know, let's not count them out, which I know the people listening to this show won't. Yeah, no, like you said, native birds. I mean, these, these birds, they're going to adapt in ways that they need to. Now, it's not saying that if we keep, if we continue to destroy their, the Achilles heels of a sage grouse is sagebrush. If we continue to yeah. destroy it, then they're not going to adapt to that. They have to have sagebrush in order to live, and that's 100% of their diet during the winters. If they don't have that, if they don't have the right sagebrush, the, then yes, we will, we will extinct them. However, I think we're far from that point, but we're at a point now where we just need to make a conscious effort to make sure that doesn't happen. Well, that's a pretty damn good point. I think we'll think we'll leave it there, Brandon. I want to talk to you about snakes now, because if I am, I haven't been hunting in what would be considered prime snake country since I was out there hunting with you. And if I'm really lucky this year, I will be. I will be back out that way, and uh, I will be back in snake country. So. Tell me what I I mean, is is this year worse? Because I just heard, I was talking to somebody recently and said they were seeing rattlesnakes all over, which I imagine is pretty common this time of year. But what are you thinking? So I think what you heard is probably right. I, knock on wood, I haven't ran into any yet this year. But here's my own personal theory on that is we're in the middle of a, we got a drought going on. We're hot. Yep. We haven't had any moisture hardly at all this year. Habitat, you think about the birds and the snakes fall under the same thing. Habitat has been lost. And so they don't have the places to hide. Same with the snakes. You're seeing more because they're not, they're, they're more visual. They're there and they're more visual. You can see them as you're walking and they're obviously their natural, um, ability to defend themselves, sometimes hide and stuff like that has been taken away. So you're going to see them more. They're going to be a little bit more, um, vocal with you know rattling and stuff like that so yes you probably will be seeing more and unfortunately the i've had a lot of people ask me about stakes but um montana like where can i go to not get them and stuff like that like welcome to montana you're in snake country mm-hmm. oh if you're hunting prairie birds you're hunting with snakes i think there's there's a parallel here in that it's always the the unfamiliar thing that kind of scares you the most, right? Like where I hunt here in the upper Great Lakes states for grouse, there's no rattlesnakes, but there's timberwolves. Everywhere I hunt, there are timberwolves, yet here I am going into the woods day after day after day after day, and I'm just at some level of comfort with that. You know, I got a GPS on my dog, and I run a bell, and I do certain things. So I guess what I'm getting at is what are perhaps, what are some of the things that that allow you to mentally be okay with going into the, into the field out there. So the big thing for me is I have snake broke, uh, all my dogs. And I yeah. know that's a hard thing for somebody like you that you don't have rattlesnakes or anything like that. So how do you get that done? And what, a, you know, my advice is, okay, so you're coming to Montana, you go through North Dakota somewhere in that, you know, in that neighborhood, a lot of these snake breaking clinics are done by a, tra- a dog trainer. There's dog clubs in those areas. You get on the internet, uh, Google, you know, dog dog clubs in North Dakota. Find out if they've ever done a, um, a snake-breaking clinic and who did it. And you can call that person directly and say, hey, if I stop by your place on the way out, can you snake-break my dog? 
and mo- most of the time that they have that ability to do so and you know it's, i think it, usually it's around forty dollars here in montana you know when we do it, it's around forty dollars which is the best forty dollars you'll spend because every time my dogs have seen a snake that i've been able to notice they swap ends and get out of there after they've been snake broke so that's where I get comfortable, but there's still, the one time I've had a dog bit, the snake just, she was just running, didn't know the snake was there, she got too close, snake jumped up, caught her underneath the eye with one fang. What have yeah. prevented it at all? I mean, you think about it, all those dogs are covering ground, and the, yes, there's a lot of space out there, but, you know, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, dog runs right over it. Where yep. There's nothing you can do. Yep. And what st- happened in that situation? So where, where my dog got bit? Yeah. It was a weird thing because it was a place I didn't think the snakes would be as. I, I try and stay away from snakes areas. They like rocks. They like heat. You know, they got to look for areas they can get heat in the morning. And that sun starts beating on rocks. They'll do that. I've found them. So, like, when the cover's been good, you will you come out to Montana and you'll see this. There'll be really good cover. You'll be in there. And then all of a sudden there'll be, like, a a bare spot. It's just just dirt. And it's been you can tell, like, there's been mud or something there. And um, there's no cover, no grass to it. Well, I found snakes sitting in those because the heat will hit that a lot lot more. So I'm just careful when I start getting around a lot of those, I'll get out of there and stuff like that. So this time that I got bit, I was in a wheat stubble field that had been cut, you know, that was probably about uh, like three inches, four inches tall. And I was heading back to the truck. I was like, yeah, this is a safe area. There shouldn't be a snake just sitting out here. And all of a sudden, she she yelped, turned around, and a uh, and little bit. And then um, my male that had been snake, snake broke, he got real nervous and was looking at something. And you could just tell he was scared. His ears went down and everything. And he shrieked over to us to to where I was at. And um, that, I called that, that female, looked back, and she did the same thing, came back. And I walked over there, and you hear the buzzing. And so I was like, oh, great. And she's been hit. So it was in a place that I didn't think I'd, you know, I thought I was pretty safe for snakes. So you don't think it was towards the end of working them early season it was in August. And so I think it was probably, probably around nine, nine thirty as when I, I was putting them, you know, coming back to the truck and I was literally like a hundred, 150 yards from the truck. So I got out of the truck, checked it over. I didn't see anything, got home and like, it felt, it looked like half her face was falling off. I was like, Oh, mm. Looks like she did get bit, so which was about fifteen, probably about a twenty-minute drive from our my place to where we were working them, and so we took her in and to the vet and had them work on her. And she, all was well. She lived, yeah. <laughs> I think, don't leave me hanging, man. Yeah, no, no, yeah. She she lived. She was an older dog at the time. I think she was twelve, thirteen years old, and she didn't ever fully. I don't think she fully recovered, but she was an really? old dog at the same time. Yeah, she just didn't seem the same. I think it took a little bit out of her. I think she was younger. It would have happened. That's just my thoughts. But I think majority of the time, your dogs aren't going to die from snakes. They're going to get really super sick. And, um, and But they, there is the potential there that it will kill them. But it's not going to be easy on them by any means. Do you carry anything in your vest to, like, I know I... I... I'm hesitant to even say this, but I heard it on a podcast recently, which, you know, it's almost like a disclaimer in itself, but Benadryl, which is something I had heard about giving your dogs. And then some vet heard that and said, never give your dog Benadryl. Other vets have said, do give your dog Benadryl. So 
I'm, I'm like hesitant to even leave this in the podcast, but what, what are your thoughts on that? So I got a real good answer for that. So I used to carry okay. a Benadryl steroid shot. Luckily, I never had to use it. I'd just leave it in the cooler and always have it there and stuff like that. I always heard that if you give it a good. Then I started uh, my best hunting buddy um, uh, here in Billings. He's my good friend, and we go hunting together all the time. He's he's a vet, and he owns he owns quite a, a few clinics up here and stuff like that. He's been around uh, the vet world for quite a long time and really knowledgeable about it. And so I've always been, I'm sitting there telling him like, should I give him, should I start carrying a Benadryl shot with me, a steroid Benadryl shot with me and stuff like that. And he's like, what do you see me carrying? I was like, nothing. He goes, exactly. That's why he's like, there's really nothing that's going to stop it. You just gotta, your dog gets big. You get into the vet as quick as you can. Mm. Okay. So he doesn't think it helps. He doesn't even, you know, if somebody's, Somebody comes in and wants the uh, the anti or the whatever it is the the sh- shot that they have beforehand. The vaccine. The That's vaccine, the next yeah. thing I was going to ask you about. I've never done that. Um, I know a lot of people have. I know some people swear by it. You know, I really trust this guy's opinion. He says he hasn't. He's not convinced that it's a, a for sure thing. And so I just I just don't do it. I just you know, if, my theory is if a dog gets bit, I'm carrying them out. We're getting them in the truck. We're getting out of there and getting to the vet. Okay. Well, I think that is probably, we know that is absolutely the most sound advice to get your dog out of there as fast as you can and get him to the vet. So I think we'll leave it there. Yeah. For people, you get this, I get this question quite a bit about snakes and it is something that I don't, you know, I'm comfortable out there, but I'm also aware of it as well. And so if you're, if you're, you got to weigh your options and say, you know, is this worth it? Is it worth it, you know, to fill my my dream of coming out west and doing hunting because there is going to be snakes there. And if it is, there you go. And like I said, knock on wood, one on one time in 31 years I've had a dog bit, but that could change tomorrow. <laughs> Man, yeah, that is so true. And that's it is a very parallel conversation with the one that we have about wolves. And we, you know, I sort of sometimes take comfort in the rare rareness of occurrences. And, you know, I've I've been in the woods. I've heard wolves. I've seen the sign. I've, you know, I've, I've pretty much seen it all except for the worst thing that could happen, which knock on wood, I, I hope to never see that. But that's one of the many, many risks we face every time we cut the dogs loose in the uplands, man. Yep. There's always a risk and you got to decide if it's worth it or not. For me, it is worth it just to go out there. And I think the dogs know, you know, if the dogs knew what the risk was, they'd still be, still be loading up. Well, I think that's probably one of the things that allows us to do it because we, we see the dogs, their drive and what they love to do and, you know, keeping them out of the cover would be more than likely detrimental to their mental health. I mean, that's, they make it so obvious. Yep. Oh, that's very, very quality conversation. I appreciate that. It's something I've been thinking about. And and again, I know it's not an uncommon question. You obviously get asked that a lot. Well, let's talk about... We got into it there, but let's talk about the dry conditions, the drought, uh, as much as we can. And I want to, I want to sort of set the stage a little bit for. I think it's like most people are going to be aware of the situation. This is, this is. I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it's definitely unusual. We are in very, very dry drought conditions. I know it's worse out there than it is here. We've actually got some rain in the last couple of weeks, which I don't think you have. Tell me about the conditions in general and how it compares to a, a regular year and what's going through your head. So I was telling my wife on the way home, I gave her a call today and I said, we've had drought in Montana. We've never had drought like this. 
Wow. And so it's, I mean, looking outside, it's like there's a haze of smoke. We're on fire. There was a lot of, a lot of these areas. I took some pictures and showed to her and stuff like that. It looks like the Dust Bowl days. Like there's literally areas that is just, there's no field left. And, um, places last year. So first place I went today, um, it just, there was zero cover left last year. It was probably a good, you know, shin high to knee high cover and, um, mid shin to, to knee high. And so there was none there, none there today at all. And so the drought's really taken its toll. Like I, I had a lot of high hopes for this year because last year in Montana, we had a good bird season. We had good yep. sharp tails, good sage grouse, good hunts and good pheasants. And so, uh, our winter was super mild and there's really no winter kill, but this year, so then we started getting early. We started getting a lot of grasshoppers. However, that's kind of like a huge indicator for me. If we got good grasshoppers, usually that means the birds are got good feed Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So it just never rained. It just kept never raining, never rained. It never snowed. Our rivers are running way low, running dry and everything. So, I went out there and looked at this new this area that I went to last year. It was a good area last year. See, good number of birds. There's no way a bird can even live in it right now. And so it's. I think we're just kind of at a a, ble- a pretty bleak outlook of this drought, and we're kind of at the mercy of it right now. You know, there's there's still birds here. Yeah, there's birds, but you're you're not looking at high numbers of them. Is it? You know, if you wanted to look at, is it worth coming? If your plan was to come out or not. That's got to kind of got to be up to you. I'll still, you know, I'll still be going out. I've went out at seasons before where I knew I'd see maybe one or two birds a day. The bird numbers are just low, and I still went out multiple days a week. And so, yeah, I'll go out, but am I going to travel, you know, take a week off of work and travel hundreds of miles? I don't know if I'd do that. Yeah, that's helpful. Are we... (laughs) I know this is this would be hard to you know, it's not like you can speak for everybody and it'd be hard to answer this question, but you know, do we get into a situation where bird hunters might all of a sudden be unwelcomed, you know, in the state of like are condition could conditions be too bad that it's just like, you know, people should be what should we be thinking about? I mean, I just like I don't even know. Um they if in in the past the fishing game, if things are too bad, they close it. Right, they'll, they'll right. postpone it. They'll close it. They've done that before, and they need to, and stuff like that. And there hasn't been any talk about that. There's been people hitting, hitting around. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Um, as far as <laughs> not being welcome in Montana, um, maybe that was a long time ago that started. But uh, some, you know, some of the locals think it's their area, and you know, we we belong here. Nobody else does. But at the same time, I go to other states and hunt as well, so I know what it's like. Right, right. There's always going to be some of that. Yeah, but um, I, I think you know it goes along the lines as of ethics. So it, it comes down to what you want, and it comes down to ethics. You can come out here and go hunting, and say you get into uh, a flock of sharp tail out there. It has you know your limits four on those, and you get into a flock of um, then you just follow them and follow them and shoot them all out, get your limit and you shoot every one of them, well, then really it's not an ethical thing. Legally, you're fine. Ethically, you just, on a bad, bad bird year, it was just to get your limit to shoot as many as you can. Then that's where it's going to start, you know, 
it comes down to, to me, that's where I like, you know, you're probably, probably not as welcome if you're doing stuff like that. If you want to come out, enjoy the experience, um, shoot some birds and, and, and go hunting and really work hard. And, you know, you get into that flock of sharp tail and you take one of, uh, take two of them out of it and then you leave them. Just let them go, and then you go to the next. You go try and find the next group, and you may not find the next group. You might, you might only find that one group, and you got to be okay with not getting your limit, not shooting a ton of birds, but being out here and enjoying the experience. Yeah, that's ultimately where I wanted the conversation to go, and I probably could have started there, but you know, I, I know in asking that question about, you know, folks being unwelcomed. I mean, there's the flip side of that is we're. Oftentimes we're talking about public land and public land that we all, you know, we all work for and own and, and have a right to enjoy. So I think, I think you nailed it there as far as just um, some of those ethical things. And that's what I, that's what I ultimately wanted to get to. And I was reading on a Upland forum the other day and somebody just said, you know, you could still go, you know, just because you're there doesn't mean you have to shoot four birds or like you said you know shoot shoot all four birds out of the same fly. you know you can still go and enjoy the experience and you can be very observant as to what you're seeing with birds on the landscape and paying attention to all that stuff which we should all be doing as bird hunters anyways yeah i did a trip a few years back to nebraska with some friends and uh their bird numbers i, I didn't realize it until we got there their bird numbers were low 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 i think we were there for four days and i ended up I shot one bird and one other guy shot a bird that trip and we could have shot more. We just didn't do it. And it was one of the funnest trips I ever had. So I think there's two shots fired the whole, the whole trip. And, and really we didn't even need to have those two trips, those two, two shots fired. It was just, you know, the, the one that I took my, my young dogs, uh, pointed a bird and it was a neat experience for me. I, the birds got up, I took one out of it and that was good enough for me. And so I think, you know, you just got to have that. Now there's years that like, not to say if I went there and there was birds everywhere and I shot that one bird out of that one, I got into another covey and shot one out of it and got into another flock and, and shot one out of it and got to my limit that I, it wouldn't make me feel bad. You know, if the dogs are doing good and everything and the bird numbers are great, then by all means do it. And legally it's your decision. It's just ethically, are you just going to go out there and, you know, and whether you're out of state or in state, shoot up what you can. Yeah. Uh, and those conversations, they apply whether the weather conditions are like they are this year or whether it's a normal year. Again, like, kind of like what you're saying. I mean, you know, you should be thinking about that as a bird hunter always, you know. And, and I think most people, the ideal situation would be get some dog work, flush a bunch of birds, get one, go on, get some more dog work, flush a bunch of different birds, get one. You know, I think the end of that day is going to leave you feeling pretty dang good about, about your day. Yep. Yeah. And you know, really to get a limit of sharp tail and even stage grass of that is not that hard. when you get into a group of birds, you can I get, would agree. Yeah. you know, the way that sharp tail and early season, sharp tail, early season stage grass work is yeah. they don't all get up at once. You can have a, a side by side over and under two birds get up and you shoot a double. Then you reload. By the time you reload, there's still birds there where you can shoot your yep. double right there. And if it's, you know, you're bragging rights. I hunted with a guy a few years back and that was, you know, we'd go to the restaurants and he'd ask people, you know, what are you hunting? Are you hunting birds? And he's like, how'd you do? And stuff like that. And then he'd brag about his limit of sharp tail and sage grouse that he shot every day. And it was quite embarrassing to me. And, uh, I, it's the last time I'll hunt with the guy. And cause it's just not my, my ethical background for me. Yeah. 
All right. So one thing I want to talk to you about, Brandon, and this is, I was at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp the last couple of days talking to somebody that hunts Montana and I was asking him about, you know, things to be aware of. And he mentioned something to me that I would not have thought about. And that just goes my ignorance hunting out there. But he talked about with the dry conditions, the extreme danger of possibly starting a fire and, and being mindful of your vehicle and the heat underneath your vehicle. And you have to really be careful where you drive and where you park. If you've got a hot vehicle, talk to me about that. Yeah. So you need to be pretty cautious about that. You know, luckily I've never, never had that happen, but I've always, always, especially this time of year, I'm very cautious about it. And I'll park, I'll park as much on the road as I can. And still, what what you got to be aware of is a lot of these, like these County roads, it's not just another hunter is going to go by. You got a you got a truck pulling a cattle trailer, going to be coming by there. So you got to give them enough room. So I I leave as much room as I I possibly can, but I don't I don't go to um too far over so that the tall grass is underneath my truck. Make sure there's no tall grass underneath there. Park in a bald spot if you right. can. Park as much on the on the road while you're still being courteous to people that would need to pass by and stuff like that as you can. And then also, like when I say roads, I'm, I'm talking about like the county roads, not not the uh, the highway roads. There's you know there's right. some places that you will park by those, but it's, a lot of times you'll find a little pull out. You can just park there, and if it means that you have to walk an extra three four hundred yards or whatever, by all means do it. It's worth not burning up the land. And uh, you know, like we've talked about, we're stewards of the stewards of the land, conservation stuff like that. If you burn it up, yep. if you burn sage up, it's gone. It doesn't come back. So I think it takes like you right. know, for 50 to 80 years for sagebrush to grow back, which it never will. That's nuts. Plus, yeah, plus it'll cost you a ton of money to, you know, have that fought, and you could be hurting people's livelihoods. So just I look for bald spots that I could get underneath my truck, and if I can park as much on the county road as possible, I do by still being considerate. Yeah, so use common sense. Obviously, don't block anything that you don't have to, but this year more than ever be extremely mindful of a hot vehicle and tall grass and yep yeah all right man good deal let's move on continuing on on the weather line conditions stuff what are you thinking about as a bird hunter you know we're talking about some sort of high level of conditions and stuff what are you thinking about as a bird hunter and i really want to get to the loss of habitat based on like and I don't understand it well, so I'm hoping you can fill me in. But we've got grazing and we've got haying going on that normally, on a normal year, wouldn't. So, talk to us about how that's going to affect huntable cover and, more importantly, habitat for the birds that are there. Yeah. So, I think they just put out a request to do emergency haying on stuff, and it's gonna, it's really gonna affect the birds. Um, it's a fine line that you have to draw. One of the areas I went into today, the uh, area i've been into it a lot in the past there's never any cattle in there this time of year the cattle come in usually in november to this one this one pasture and they you know it's blm it's it's sage and they come into this pasture and they they graze throughout the winter there i go there today and the fence is up and i'm like oh you the fence usually isn't up this time of year and so i go in get the fence down put the fence back up drive a little bit further and i pop over the ridge and there's a bunch of cattle in there Never, you know, the timeline before has never allowed that. It's a fine line. The ranchers need to make a living. They, right. they, they're in a bad spot. America needs beef and stuff like that too. So there is a very fine line, but it is, you know, it's easy for us to say, well, you know, 
the, that shouldn't happen. The, the birds take precedence, and then, you know, what does take precedence? But ultimately, it's the ranchers are in a bad spot, and the farmers are in a bad spot, and the, it's going to affect the birds, so it's going to affect all of us. Yeah, no, it, it, it's a complex issue, and, and really, yeah, my intention here is not to sort of prioritize what's what's more important. It's it's really just to talk about sort of the realities of the situation. And a little bit of a side note here, but I want to ask you this, because this is something that's come up in some of my hunts in western states in the last couple of years, and um, one that I don't really have a firm answer on. But when it comes to cattle in the field – and this may be specific to Montana, you know, talk to me from your experience, but what is the, what is the rule slash regulation on hunting near cattle? If you see cattle within a fenced area, are you not allowed in there? Can you go in there? Do you need to avoid them? What, tell me about it. No, you can go in there. You just got to be careful. And typically like, so, uh, this time of year, they're still, you know, the calves are still with the cows and everything. And a lot of time, those cat, those cows will get kind of ornery with dogs. They see them as a predator, mm-hmm. and so I try and typically stay away from them. And by staying away from them, I'm a few hundred yards away, but just because you know I don't want to be a problem or anything like that. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of public land in Montana. There's a next place to go, so I don't really push push them through there. Um, I don't avoid them either. If there's cattle in that field. And I want to hunt that field, and I feel safe. I go ahead and do it. There's not. I don't think okay. there's really a law or anything to it. Now, just make sure that your dog isn't. You know, you'll get a dog out there and they, harassing the yeah, cattle. Yeah, yeah. They'll want to chase. You know, if you can, a dog can chase after and get a fifteen hundred pound animal to run for him. It's pretty fun for that dog. But uh, <laughs> so you just got to make sure that doesn't happen. Well, that, again, that's another one of those things that you know it's kind of new to me. I I've never really hunted around cattle prior to 2018 and you know you very quickly see i mean they'll they'll kind of herd up and sort of they'll sort of shadow i've seen them shadow you and they kind of set up they set up a wall and it's like from what i've seen like they don't necessarily want to be near you but they also they know they acknowledge you're out there and i don't want to be near them either but i've just gotten into situations where you know sometimes you're jammed up and you're trying to sneak by and that kind of thing but um yeah i was curious as far as like if there were rules or regulations about it but no i think if we all had our if we all had our choice you know we wouldn't have anything to do with them but sometimes the cover that you have access to and everything dictates all that right yeah yeah a lot of time i mean i hunt around cows a lot of time and you know i've never had a problem with one uh you know i've had them where they you know the dogs will get close to them and they don't like that if you just Mm -hmm. keep your distance usually you're fine there's no laws no regulations i only time I had one that I thought was gonna be, <laughs> gonna be an issue, and I was I was further away than I normally was, and I hear this uh, this one start beller and holler, and I was like, oh great! And I look back, and she's quite a few hundred yards away, and she's taken off after me, and I ended up uh, having to get the dogs and me on the other side of a fence real quick. Um, so, but that was like a one time deal that's ever happened. So, yeah, if you go out there, if you see cattle, you want to hunt the field, hunt the field, you. I I have had times that ranchers have come out and said, well, I got the lease here. You can't be here. Mm-hmm. That's that's not the case. They do have the lease for grazing rights. They don't have the lease for hunting rights. You can hunt there. So um, just know, like, you know, the the best thing I say is have Onyx know where you're at. Um, yep. Know that you're on public land. If you're on public land, unless it's stated otherwise, you can hunt on it. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because – 
I wanted to bring up an example that is very, very similar to that. And this was in North Dakota last year. And again, when it comes to this situation, there's a there's a practical nature to it where no matter who's right or wrong, we have to understand, you know, about being good stewards of the land and being good representatives of as upland hunters. And, you know, do we, do we want to create an issue where there needn't be one? Right. And, and where I'm going with that is similar situation. I was in North Dakota on my way in stopped. I was on my way to my destination, but we stopped to get a hunt in an evening hunt in, um, it was in an area we hadn't really hunted before, but we dropped in on some public land. This was North Dakota school trust land, legitimate public on, on X. And we'd looked it up and everything. And we go in there and I, as I recall, we didn't even know there were cattle in the field. We started hunting below this rise and we, we cut the dogs loose. We walk up over the rise. I think as we cleared the rise, we could see cattle in the, in the section of fence that we were in. They were off in the distance and we were just content to just keep on going straight ahead where there was nothing in front of us. And we didn't get very far into the field when we heard a four wheeler and we turned around and sure enough, uh, farmer from down the road came up and he he was very nice about the entire situation but what he basically told us was we could not be in that field because their cattle were in the field and he would like us to leave and when we we chatted with him for a little bit we left the field again we were in no mood to to sort of like debate sit there and debate the guy and to be honest when something like that happens you start to question like Oh, it, like, do I really know the regulations? Like, maybe I'm wrong. So it's like, I don't want to get into argument here in the field. But as far as I can tell, we had a right to be in that field and we were asked to leave. We left. No big deal. But those are things that can happen when you're in the uplands. And I guess that's that's why we're talking about them here. Yep. Again, and I don't know about North Dakota law. I, I'm right. assuming it's pretty close to the same. But yeah, I mean, you will get people just say, no, you can't be here. This is my field, though. You know, before before Onyx, I'd have people say, you're on my land. I'm right. like, uh, I don't think so. Then you go back and look, and you're like, no, this isn't my, you know. Uh, um, when Onyx came around, a lot of a lot of uh, ranchers' lands shrunk uh, instantly. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, they'll be there, and I, I guess it's your your decision. Do you want to make a confrontation and uh, mm-hmm. and stay there and it's uh, it's up to you and again that's like i think you probably did the best thing is just leave because if you did say no i'm going to stay there you don't know what the guy is like you know there's always a chance somebody could shoot your dog or something like that something bad could happen it's not really worth it and so there's always another there's another field yep and to be totally fair i i mean i want to state again the guy was he was very respectful in the way that he was you know talking to us and conversing with us so at that point it's kind of just like hey you know, you're going to talk to us this way. Like we, we didn't really have a problem leaving. And to your point, we went down the road, you know, we, we probably could have asked him, we may have asked him if he knew of any other places. I don't recall, but we went down the road, we got into some birds. I remember it ended up being a really awesome night because, well, actually (laughs) it's kind of funny now that I'm thinking about it. It was awesome in that we, we got to a spot and like daylight's ending here, like the sun's going down, but we got a little bit of time. I think we saw some sharp tails from the road. They flushed into the field. We hop out real fast. We cut uh, my buddy Garrett's pointer loose. This is her second season, and, you know, it's like first hunt of the year, basically, and he's pretty jacked up to get this dog on some birds. And we go out, and Frankie ends up going on point. Garrett shoots a double on sharp tails, and 
like, you know, we're basically on cloud nine at that point. He just shot a double over his young pointing dog and all was good. And then we went back to the truck, found another spot nearby, took off there and we ran, gosh, I think we ran three dogs. We ran Hartley and Garrett's other two short hairs. And we had one contact out there. Uh, Garrett's dog's early and, and my dog Hartley went on point. We walked in, birds got up. I killed a sharp tail. I think Garrett, Garrett might've killed another one and maybe, maybe limited out on our first afternoon there. And it would have been a hundred percent cloud nine night, except when we got back to the truck, Hartley had come up totally lame on his back left leg. And yeah. that was when I had confirmed that he had, he had, well, I didn't know it at the time, but he, he tore his ACL. So that was Hartley's last hunt until, until he gets out in the field again this season. So that was a little bit of a bummer, but that is. yeah, my other, my other reason in bringing up that story about North Dakota was that I know we got a lot of people listening to this show and I would, I would love to hear people's thoughts and or perspectives on that. If you know, for a fact, the rules and regulations of North Dakota or Montana, or have some comments on Brandon and I's chat here, please don't be shy. Email me and uh, let me know what you know. Love to hear it. Yeah, no, definitely do. You know, there was a time when I was younger and I was feistier and everything else that I was more than <laughs> more than willing to to throw fists over a fighting field. But I'm I'm old now and I can't I can't handle that as much and stuff like that. And you know, there's it comes down to that you do have a right to be there, and if it's you know, probably the safe thing to do is to to take off to leave. But right. if it's if it's is an angry th- thing that angers you, you can definitely everybody pretty much everyone hunts with a cell phone in their pocket. You can take out you know record it and uh, what the guy's saying, record where you're at, get his license plate and everything, and go make file a complaint with the BLM if that's that's sure. what you need to do and everything else. But you do ultimately you do have a right to be there. That is public land. It's just you got to weigh your options. Is it worth it or not? And it'd be interesting to see what uh, what other people would say. You know, and there's been times that I've had ranchers come up to me and say, you know, this is my cattle are in here. You can't be here. Or I don't want you here. Stuff like that. And I will always ask, say, okay, you know, either if it's you know it's just not a you know not a place I want to be, I'll say, oh, I was just head out anyways or something like that. But then if it's a place I want to be, I'm like, so do you have a place on your property that I can go hunt? So I'm not hunting here, and there actually has been times when people are like, yeah, go ahead. I don't have cattle down here. Go ahead and go hunt this field. And there's been birds there and stuff like that too. That's a smart way to go about it. Yeah. No, I, I think you pretty much hit on most of, you know, and again, folks can, folks can write in and let us know, but I think you hit on most of the important points there. And, and again, yeah, that, like it's one thing to just sort of walk away and realize that, you know, is it worth it to create a big disturbance out here and start up something that who knows what's going to happen. But flip side of that is like you know that's sometimes where my hackles go up a little bit where it's like when somebody's overstepping and trying to cut you out of out of something that you have a right to you know and again i think you're saying all the right things on it brandon yeah no yeah i get my hackles up as well (laughs) yeah yeah but let's be good bird hunters out there stewards of the land and let's let's leave let's leave farmers and locals with a good opinion of us i think we can we don't need any anybody thinking less of us. You know, we've got a tough road as it is as hunters, so yep. we can all do our part in that regard. Uh, well, that was a dude. That was a, we got a couple more things to talk about. Are you okay on time? Yeah, doing good. Okay, cool. Yeah, we've uh, we got into some good stuff there that wasn't sure we were going to talk about it, but I do want to touch briefly on the Boyt Goki Mud River. You mentioned it earlier. What can you tell us about? those three companies just because i don't think i've really 
I don't think we've really interviewed anybody from them. Uh, you know, I had Steve Snell on Gundog Supply. I'm sure they sell those products, but I haven't really gone into those on the podcast much. And personally, I've got a little bit of everything. I've got some Boyd gun cases and some shooting stuff. I've got some really good Mud River products that I bought over the years from my dogs. I do have a pair of Goki boots that Goki was nice enough to send me, and I've been trying those. Out. I, I plan to wear those out on the prairie this fall, but tell me about Boyd Goki Mud River. So what I think of those three companies, I just think of very high quality. And that's always been that way, even before I started doing work for them. Um, my dad would have, like, Boyd gun cases growing up. And yep. somehow my brother brother ended up with all But he'd have them from his guns back in the 50s, 60s. And they're still we're still able to use them today. And so they're very, very high quality gun cases. Goki boots speak for themselves. Very high quality, good good boots and mud river i've always used mud river dog kennels and stuff like that and this hell they've held up and stuff like that so even before i started doing work for them i was a customer and believed in their product there's um i really like the company the company has a lot of ethics behind it and they they want to see the uplands grow and uh and and progress and so they're working adamantly with, with that aspect of it but I don't think you can, you know, as far as, you know, I think Boyd's known for their gun cases, but there, there's a lot more to them. There's going to be a lot more coming. Uh, and I think what you can still expect is that same high quality that we've always had. I think we've been in business since 1901. Wow. Yeah. So the story behind it is actually pretty interesting. I never knew this. this is Boyd Harness is the company. I, was, I always wondered where the harness came from. But I, talking to him, the Boyt brothers started making harnesses for horses to work in the field. And mm. so that's where they got started and um, making real high-quality harnesses. And so then the wars came around, and they started making supplies, gun supplies and stuff like that. And it kind of carried over to the private sector from there, and that's how they got going. They kept the Boyt Harness Company. There was another part division of it that split off years back. I think there's still like a Boyt luggage side of it, but... So the they've been around a long time and they've always you know they've always had that good high quality product. Yeah, and uh, the range of products amongst the three companies is pretty wide. But Boyd does you know gun cases. They've got shooting vests and you know like legitimate shooting accessories. But then they've got hunting accessories to go along with it. Mud Rivers the dog stuff and Gokey's footwear. That kind of thing. Yeah, and we also got some other companies too, but those are the three main ones that I work with, and then more yeah. more doors up when they're shooting ones and stuff like that. And, uh, Bob Allen and and yeah. uh, stuff. So they got some other companies there too. And when you and I talked a couple of weeks ago, you do have some things in the works that are they're probably not hitting the hitting the market this fall, but you're working on it for next year. Is that correct? Yeah. No, I don't. My hope was that we'd get this fall. I don't think we'll get it there, but you know, we've got some of the prototypes back and you need to make some adjustments and stuff like that. There's, there's still some work to be done, but if, if we could hit this fall, that'd be great. But I think people are going to be pleasantly surprised. And, and, uh, it's something that I really, you know, when we get those products out, I'd love to come back and talk more about them because I'm excited about them. It's stuff that, I sat around for years and thought, you know, if if we could, somebody in the Upland community could make this and this and this, it'd be great and stuff like that. So I've had years and years of just thinking about this and that I might be able to finally put those thoughts down on paper and put the, put you know, what's near and dear to my heart, the Upland hunting world, and what's going to make it better and get a get a company like Boyd and Mud River and Goki behind it. It's great, and I also work with the um, the Guide and Outfitter program, and so. 
Uh, okay. I started started working on that as well with them. And so, you know, if you're a licensed guide or outfitter, definitely get a hold of me and we can get you set up there on that that part of it. Cool. Well, yeah, we'll make sure your contact information's in the show notes and people can, they like what they're hearing and they want to get in touch with you about that. They will be able to find you and, uh, yeah, keep me, certainly keep me posted on what you guys are up to as far as new product launches and stuff. I'm sure we'll find an excuse to get you back on and talk a little bird hunting and, and, uh, let folks know about that stuff. Uh, what do you got? You know, we've talked a lot about sort of looking ahead into the season. Do you have any plans or do you have any out of state trips planned or anything? So I might, um, I got some buddies that hunt Texas quite a bit. And so I might go down there they got some leases down there and stuff like that, that I might go hunt. Um, my initial plans were to, I wanted to go to Alaska this year actually and hunt ptarmigan and I'd probably be up there, you know, right about, you know, starting heading up there now. But obviously with the surgery and stuff like that, things got, got changed. And I was yeah. also pretty, pretty sure that we were going to have a great bird year, but I'm not sure what we'll have this year. So out of state, I'm thinking maybe Texas. I would like to hit, I don't know if it'll happen this year or not. I'd like to hit, um, do some chucker hunting someplace, Idaho or Nevada or something like that. But you know, Montana, we, I got, I got told we're kind of spoiled because we got all these birds and all these big game and stuff like that. And you know, where I hunt birds, I also hunt big game. You know, I, I can sit, I can sit in uh, one spot and decide if I'm going to hunt. If the seasons were open all at the same time, I could hunt sharp tail hunts, sage grouse, pheasants, white tail deer, mule deer, antelope, and occasional elk. It's sitting in one spot. Just a few. Yeah. So, you know, there's quite a bit to hunt here. So going out of state, I do love that. I think, you know, it's a good way to extend my, my winter season because we go to our, our bird season goes to, you know, first of January, goes through December, and then, but usually, well, last year was an exception, but usually it gets pretty cold, and I'll still hunt. It'll still be down, and then, you know, I think I've, the coldest I've ever hunted was regular temperatures, negative 19, and then the wind chill on top of that. So I'll hunt it, but it's not the the best hunting, whereas if I went, you know, I could extend my season, go down in January to to Idaho or Nevada, and then down to Texas and get an extra few weeks of bird hunting there, it's definitely worth it. So I'm hoping to do that this year. Yeah. One thing I forgot to ask you about, you you mentioned it earlier, made me think about it, but I know that you have been very good about exposing your daughters to the outdoors and getting on big game hunts. And, you know, I've seen a lot of pictures. What, how old are they again? And, and where are they at with their outdoor journey? Are they still kind of loving it and doing a bunch of stuff? Yep, they are. So I got my three daughters there are, let's see, what are they? 16, 13, and 11. And so all three of them can legally all three of them can hunt deer and and birds i don't let them hunt birds until they're 12 at 10 you can hunt birds in big game i don't let them hunt birds till they're 12 i think those two years of maturity is really important the last thing i you know with the last thing i want is for shooting the dogs the birds get up the dogs are running around there's people around the birds are moving you got a few seconds to make a shot i think they need that to that 12 and that's just my personal belief it's not you know my ethics or i imagine they're still they're still going with you on some hunts yeah they're definitely going with me um my youngest one like i said before she's got her own bird dog gary and uh he's a he's a real good dog and stuff like that she's pretty excited to be able to go go hunt over him so she loves it my middle one she's really you know she decided to hunt birds last year she and uh 
she really hadn't put a lot of time and practice in, and we were giving it a try, and it's, it's a hard time for her. She's put more practice in this year. She's doing good. She got her own shotgun. All three of them have uh, have shot deer, deer, and then my oldest has shot some antelope and some deer and some uh, uh, actually one really nice buck, and then she shot some birds as well. So this year will be my my middle daughter's year to shoot some birds and. And, um, in fact, antelope tags, the results just came out today. My oldest and I drew, my middle one didn't. And so they, they go out with me quite a bit and I love it. There's, you know, I don't, I'm not missing anything by not having boys and as far as the hunting world goes and uh sports world or anything in particular, but so they're all very into it. They're all, you know, excited. My, you know, a dream of mine is to hunt sheep someday. And I think my older daughter, she loves soccer. She said, if I drew a cheap tag, I'd just quit soccer for the season and go sheep hunting. And I was like, well, that's, uh, you know, you're following in your dad's footsteps. You're raising them right, man. You're setting a good example for guys like me that, you know, I'm a father too, and we'll soon have, soon have another one, but my kids aren't quite that old. So something to look up to, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, just take. I mean, just do. Just take them for walks, and you know, whatever you yeah. can do, just get them out there. My oldest one, she used to hate hunting when she was younger. I had a trick her. I'd be like, "Hey, let's go do something together." And she'd be like, "Okay." And she's like, "What do you? What are we doing?" I was like, "Oh, don't worry about. it. I'll tell you when we get there." And she'll Shoot be sitting the there. Dogs looking are in the truck, and yeah, and she's like, "We're going hunting, aren't we?" Like, yeah, we are. And so I actually, yeah, I had to take my middle one in order to get my oldest one to go hunting. I took my middle one out. And we went camp. You know, we took the trailer up. We stayed in the trailer. We made all the best food. We had such, you know, I let her do whatever she wanted. She had the best time. She comes home and she's telling her mom about it. And her older sister's there. She's saying, there's this and this. And it was so much fun, mom. And it was great and this and that. And right after that, my oldest one turns and looks at me and says, hey, hey, dad, can we go hunting sometime? I'm like, sure. <laughs> that's the way to do it, man. That's that's pretty sneaky of you. Good yeah, one. <laughs> it worked because all three of them go hunting with me, and I love it. Yeah, that's awesome, dude. You still shooting those old Satori's? I got one Satori, and I got the okay. I got the um, the superpose. It was my dad. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then uh, so I I got my daughters. I got them automatics because I, they're quite a bit lighter and stuff like that, and they they sure. cost behind behind them. So I got them a couple light twenty gauges. My ultimate goal one day is to come to you guys and uh, Upland Gun Company and get get a side by side twenty gauge from you. Told my wife I was going to do it. It's like you know I'm going to get one of these guns one day, and she gave me the go ahead, but I never told her what they actually cost. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a there's a lot of variability in in what the cost needs to be and can be. So they're certainly not. Not the gun that is in everybody's budget, but like I said, there's there's quite a bit of variety in there, and we can kind of kind of work with you on that. So if you when that time up, comes, you give me a call. Man. Oh yeah, definitely. If you say, I mean, it's not nothing's going to happen this year, but it's just money I got to yeah. save up, and it's just a goal I have in mind. It's going to happen, and it's going to be a nice one for me. I know that. Awesome, dude. Well, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. It was great to catch up with you, man. Excellent conversation. A lot of stuff in here that I think will be very interesting to to folks that are, you know, as we're looking ahead into bird seasons and uh, can't thank you enough, man. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It was great. And I'm looking forward when, uh, when Boyd and Mud River and these guys get these new products out, getting back out. And I'm super excited about them and I can't wait to talk about them. So for folks interested in that, where should they go? They can go to our website right now and just keep track there. And, um, boytharness.com what is it boytharness.com yep and okay. then on there you'll also find 
the uh, there's links to the Mud River and the Goki okay. and everything else. I don't I don't know if Goki's on that one or not, but we're gonna redo. Uh, they've our, got their own website. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna redo our websites in there sometime. I, I believe I'm not 100 percent sure, but they can go there and find what they you know. We got a lot of good quality products now. We got some coming up, and like I said, as soon as those come out. You and I will be back on uh, on this podcast doing some more talking about that. Are you still on Instagram, Upland four hundred six, something like that? I am. I haven't. Yeah, Upland four hundred six, and then I do Facebook. So, but I haven't posted that much. Okay. Uh, just with everything that's happened with me and stuff like that, I've kind of just been laying low, stuff like that. The pictures and content I've been taking, I've been sending to Mud River for them to put on there and things like sure. that. And so, I'll start, you know, gearing back up, putting some more stuff on there and. I, I I like to put stuff on there, not not necessarily for a brag or anything like that, but I like I like people seeing what I love, and I like them getting excited about it, and that's why I post those things. But yeah, you know, I think that's pretty similar to a lot of us, man. Yeah. yeah so cool, dude. Well, again, I I really appreciate you taking the time, and like I said, it was great to catch up with you, and let's keep in touch on a number of these things, and I wish you the absolute best luck this fall. I'm pumped that you're going to be back out there doing it, man, and you're going to be where you love oh i'm so excited thanks for having me i like you said we need to get back out together yeah right on man that is brandon moss that does it for this episode of the podcast thanks for tuning in everybody Thanks for tuning in to the Project Upland Podcast. That does it for this episode of the show. A quick reminder that the Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, CZ USA, Garmin, Sage and Breaker, and Dakota 283. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe or follow the show in your podcast app. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast. This is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.